The writer of Lamentations reflects on how God is the parent who always follows through with what he promises. Welcome to Daily Gospel, equipping you to know God through His Word and His Son, Jesus Christ. My name is Keith, and this is Brandon, and we are both pastors at Gospel Community Church here in Santa Cruz, California. Welcome, like, subscribe, comments. Brandon, this is going to be a sad day, is it not? It is, yeah. Well, There's a lot well, of sad books in the Old Testament, man. Uh, there is a lot of sad books. It, it, one would say that it's mostly a sad book with uh, some glimmers of hope, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I guess you can kind of say that. Yeah. Limitations is pretty, is pretty rough, so yeah, depression, round three. It's going to be great. Yeah. So it gives some context. prophet strikes back. Yes. Well, some argue that, as yeah. with most books, I guess. Yeah, exactly. But, exactly. Um, yeah. What's like, where are we at in, in the genre of books in this part of the Old Testament? Yeah. So we're in the, the major prophets. We've seen Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. We spent a long time on that. Mm-hmm. And we, we saw that, that was around the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. So the, the northern kingdom fell in around 722 B.C., and they were conquered by Assyria. And then Jeremiah takes place with the fall of the southern kingdom. Hmm. So Jeremiah starts b- before that and is warning about that. And then the fall happens. And Lamentations is written, I would say, by Jeremiah right. uh, in light of that fall. So in light of the fall of Jerusalem as a witness to that fall of Jerusalem, he's lamenting, he's reflecting on the destruction that he's seeing. And crying out to God for help. Mm-hmm. We're going to also see, well, yeah, we're going to see next, we're going to see Ezekiel, which takes place in exile, and Daniel as well. So those are the major prophets, and we're kind of right in the middle with this little book, this little book that almost feels kind of out of place compared to the rest of the major prophets. Right. But, uh, the, you know, the, the, the title of Lamentations, <clears throat> in every language, essentially, Hebrew, Greek, Latin, it, it's some, some form of that word, lamentation. Hmm. In, in Latin, it's lamenta. So we have our English word lamentations. You can see the connection there. But lament is, I feel like lament is a very common phrase. Like when I was growing up as a kid, I didn't hear this word much. Right. But it seems like it's much more common now. So what what is lament and why is it important? Yeah. Uh, well, I or think, is it important? Yeah, I think the word could, it's like a word that makes sense to us when I think of the word lamentations or the definition would just be mourning. It, it has something to do with sadness, right? Yeah. And it's something to do with the struggles of this life. Like, you know, it's it's a sorrowful thing for sure. We see that in the the Bible all over the place. But I feel like the world has a has a definition of lament as well. And like the biblical definition of lament, we'll see is like quite different. I think as as we go through this book of Lamentations, we see some of the teaching through it. But the world, when I hear the word lament from people, I just I hear it's more of a selfish kind of thing and not so much as just a, a, a sorrowful thing. And it's hard for me to like it's hard for me to, you know, as I've studied the, the idea of lament, it's hard for me to separate biblical lament and worldly lament because I, I feel like the world doesn't have categories for it. But I feel like most of the time when the world says lament, they're talking about a selfish woe or a, a self serving woe at the very least, that that there's no hope within that sorrow, you know? Yeah. And yeah, I think that's the key is having a worldly idea of mourning is that there's usually not much hope, where the Christian idea of mourning or lament, it's filled with hope. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I I think it's also used a lot by more progressive Christians. And I've had people use this where they're mourning some sort of political tragedy, you know, some sort of current social crisis, whatever. That usually is very highly charged politically, and they're saying, well, we're lamenting this, 
you can't tell us there's hope. You can't give us solutions. We, we just want to lament. We want to sit in that lament. But yeah, I think often it can become very self, self-absorbed, self introspective mm-hmm. only. Instead of looking at where biblical lament does, which it looks, it's crying out to God. Mm-hmm. It's not just speaking to the world. It's not just trying to overthrow the system or something like that. Right. It's actually directed at God because he can act on our behalf and do something about it. Mm-hmm. And it hopes in the, in the reality that God has proven through the sacrifice of Jesus and his resurrection that God can will pay any price and overcome any obstacle to redeem his people. Right. So lament has to has to look different for the Christian. Right. Than for the non-Christian. Yeah, and it, and it does when you read the book of Lamentations, when you read Job, when you read the Psalms, you see this the lament, this sorrow, this this reaching out for God, but there's always hope attached to it and there's always trust in God attached to it. Yeah. So I, I think uh, a pastor in Indianapolis, his name is Mark Vrogop. He, I think he, he has a statement that I think really clarifies the biblical idea of lament. And he says this. He says, To cry is human, but to lament is Christian. To cry is human, but to lament is Christian. He's, he's separating out the, the categories of worldly you know, sadness and then Christian sadness. You know, My daughter can come to me and just melt down like she did the other day when, we were prepar- when I was preparing for uh, this episode. She's just melting down because she couldn't go to the store and go shopping. She's two years old, and she doesn't even really know what shopping is, but she likes going out. You're a terrible out. parent. I know, I know, I know. She said, should I melt it down? And we said, okay, we're not going to go shopping anymore. And uh, she continued to cry for the next 40 minutes. And so that was what I would say is worldly crying, sadness. That's not what lament is in the Bible, right? Um, so to cry is human. Every human experiences suffering. Every human experiences, uh, you know, sorrow and sadness and tears. Even the Bible promises to take away our tears, you know. Um, but lament, I think, is a very specific thing in the Bible. And I think, you know, uh, Mark, this pastor from Indianapolis, he, he has four points that kind of define for us what biblical lament can look like. There's like kind of action steps to it. The first thing that you know true lament, uh, biblical lament, is happening in your life is that you turn to God when you have a sorrow, when you have a suffering, when there's something is not right, which the world is broken, everything is not right. Do you turn to God in those moments, or are you just self-pitying in those moments of sorrow? The next thing he says, complain to God. We see in the Psalms, we see even Jesus on the cross, God complain or voicing a worry or a complaint to God. Let God know your situation. And so, and then you you ask something of God. So you pray to Him, you petition to Him, and then at the end of the day, whether God fulfills that prayer or not, you trust God in the process. So you turn to God, you complain to Him, you ask Him, and then you, at the end of the day, you trust in Him. That's lament, and that's that's a biblical idea of trusting in God, even though when things are sorrowful, when life brings you mourning, and and that's that's the difference between the Christian and the the normal human is that the Christian has something to hope in the middle of mourning. Yeah, it's like Job, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Exactly. Right. That, that, does it matter, or even as we'll see in the book of Daniel, right, God can save us if he doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, he still deserves the glory. Yep. You know, we still trust in him. So it's, yeah, it's putting your, your hope in him. That's good. So it's about why you're lamenting and who you're speaking to. Right. And yeah, I get worried too just about the world and seeing like especially with just the social justice movements of, you know, today. There there's no category for that kind of mourning in their theology and worldview. It's all something bad has happened a long time ago, maybe even like a microaggression or something bad or even an actual racist thing happens today. But there's no hope out of that situation because there's no category for them to lament with hope. It's just all about sadness. Bring me yeah. the sadness. 
you know, nothing can fix this problem. You know, the, you know, end is inevitable and it's destruction is, you know, the result of all this stuff and there's no hope. Yeah. The Christian worldview of lament is hope in the midst of suffering. That's the whole beautiful idea of lamentations is there, even though life is hard, it sucks, there's hope. That's that's yeah. the awesome part about this book of Lamentations is that it, it gives people something to hold on to in the midst of the crazy storms. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think the social justice movements they often want to um, tear down the system to re, to read you know create everything mm-hmm. as some sort of utopian society. Right. So po- pointing to actual answers and especially to a God who gives a gospel that gets to the root of those problems isn't actually helpful. It, and yeah. from their perspective, right? I mean, yeah. In terms of their agenda. So not to say everyone who uses the term social justice is on that page, but I think by and large those movements are about that. Right. They're about tearing down and not building up. So that would be a uh, conversation for a different time to get into more. But no, but it, yeah. in terms of lament, I, I totally agree. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And just, yeah, we, we got to be very careful, I think, as Christians about how we deal with with this idea of lament, how how are we dealing with the the conflicts and the sorrows of this life? Because you might be dealing with them in a totally anti-gospel kind of way, yeah. and that's a scary thing for a Christian to be in. Well, yeah, I mean, like when when some tragedy happens, where do you go for justice? You know, I even saw it. Obviously, last year George Floyd was the big thing, right? And his court case and all that, and the people who were upset by that got the result that they wanted, mm-hmm. and it made no one happy, right? Not a single person was was happy about that. It was right. just immediately, this isn't enough. This isn't enough. And so, and that's the thing is, I think lament recognizes, especially someone in, in Jeremiah's situation, which was so awful, it recognizes that there is no possibility of full justice, of full utopia, of full mm-hmm. redemption uh, on this earth through human means. Yeah, like that's the whole that's the whole point. So anyway. So yeah, I think this is really good because it's it's going to help us to think through our own when we struggle when we look at the world around us and we say it's broken. Mm-hmm. It, it, obviously, in light of even the last book we looked at, Jeremiah, we are exiles. Of course, the world is is against yeah. us. Of course, the world is broken. Of course, it's going to be frustrating to us. What did you expect? Right. That's the world we live in. Exactly. The real hope is you know not just you know that. It, I think the real functional hope for us today is that we know as Christians that God is in control. He's yeah. sovereign. He's writing the story. And so we don't need to worry about what has happened in the past. We don't need to worry about what's happening right now, though we're Christians and involved in the world. We can trust God no matter what our circumstances look like. That's right. So. Yeah, so the world is messed up. The world is broken. Lament recognizes that, but it also recognizes that ultimate redemption and the solution to these problems can't come by our own strength. They have to come from God. Mm. And that's a great thing to know. That's a great thing to learn. Mm. And that's why lament can be so powerful because it turns us to hope in someone else, someone right. greater. Yeah. Well, let's let's get into this book and some of what it's about. So who wrote the book? Um, Jeremiah is the uh, tra- traditionally considered the writer of Lamentations. I'm going to raise my mic up here because this is bugging me. Um, of course, that's not 100% sure, like so many things, but that's what it was considered for a very long time. Yeah. And it was written, as I said, right after the destruction of Jerusalem. So you almost have a, you have a real eyewitness account. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, this is an almost, this is an eyewitness account. And it was um, written with a vantage of someone right outside of Jerusalem looking in at the city and... There's, there's personification used. So each chapter personifies the city in some way as a woman or a man or things like that. Yeah. Um, now, remember from history from this time period, the last sort of gasp for the nation of Judah. So Israel falls in the 720s. Judah, though, is, is around for another 150 years or so. 
And the, the last gasp for the nation of Judah was King Josiah. He was the final king that attempted to follow right. follow God. And he, he you know, they rediscovered the, the law. That was Jeremiah's father, Hilkiah, who mm-hmm. did that. But when Josiah died in 609 BC, it was just downhill from there. Yeah. So there's not much hope at that point. It's just worse and worse kings. And the final legitimate king is King Jehoiachin. So there's an invasion of Babylon during King Jehoiakim's reigns, and then they're conquered by, uh, during King Jehoiachin's reigns. Mm-hmm. It's very confusing names, yes. I know. And then Zedekiah is put in place as sort of a vassal king. So mm-hmm. he is of the kingly family, mm-hmm. but he wasn't the rightful king. Right. So he's put in place as sort of a placeholder, a, a ruler under Babylon's rule, um, a puppet government, I guess you could say. And during the ministry of Jeremiah, he's warning Zedekiah again and again not to rebel against Babylon. So this is God's plan. He's saying, don't turn against Babylon because God's not going to save you. God's will is for you to be in exile. God's will is for you to be under the rule of, of King Nebuchadnezzar. But Zedekiah prefers to listen to the false prophets who tell him that they're going to be free from Babylon's rule. Yep. That sounds like something nice. So he rebels and he earns the wrath of the king of Babylon as well as the wrath of God. Yep. And so the city finally fell completely in 587, 586 B.C. Sad. So that's that, that's that final destruction. So Jeremiah is witnessing that fall and the temple being destroyed. And this is before he goes down to Egypt as a captive, mm-hmm. as we saw last time. So, so some big themes. I mean, Jerusalem, the importance of the city, obviously, is a big theme. Mm-hmm. Why is the city so important? Well, because it's the city of, of the Lord. It's the city where the temple is. It's the city where the Davidic kings reign. Um, the priests administer all these things that are so central to their understanding of who God is mm-hmm. and how to commune with God yep. and the hope of the world. I mean, the Davidic kingship is the hope of the world, that there's going to be a king that will come from that line who will crush Satan forever and reign in righteousness. That's the hope. And right. yet now we, we're going to see Jerusalem being destroyed. So everything comes back to Jerusalem because that's the hope of the world. It's, right. it's kind of you know encapsulated in that location. Mm-hmm. Um, we see a theme of sin and judgment. How should we respond as, as God's people to sin and judgment? It, uh, it, it wasn't just that in this book that God's people are receiving sort of a natural, you know, so, you know, cause and effect impact of their sins. It's that God actually is judging them through these means. Right. So God is, of course, it's something that they earned, but God is actively judging them. And we saw this warning in Deuteronomy, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 27, 28, these promises of the curse that will come if they disobey, and that's being yeah. being uh, fulfilled in this in this uh, book. We see that, and then of course we see suffering and lament. So it's very similar in some ways to Job. We see some similarities, but Job is individual suffering. Right. This is corporate suffering. Um, Job was also sinless, and and the reason why his suffering was because he didn't have any sin. And this it's it's directly because they're sin. Right. So there are some big differences, but a lot of the language is similar, and it also reminds. It reminds me a lot of the lament psalms and even some of the messianic psalms, for sure. Feature in this in this section. Yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit about the structure of the book. Um, Jeremiah, as we said, is super unclear in his structure, very hard to outline. <laughs> Lamentations is the exact opposite. Yeah, it's very structured. So it's incredibly highly structured. So you you may have noticed as you were reading it that the first chapter and the second chapter and the fourth chapter and the fifth chapter all have twenty two verses. Mm-hmm. And that's because the first four chapters are all acrostics, meaning that that's a different letter for each verse. Mm-hmm. So they it goes in order of the alphabet. So it's 
you know, Aleph, Bet, and it goes through the, the Hebrew alphabet. Mm-hmm. So all 22 letters in each chapter, except for chapter five, which doesn't have, it kind of, it feels like the sort of chaos at the end, mm-hmm. but it still has 22 verses. Yeah. So it's not the same structure. And then chapter three, which stands in the middle, has 66 verses, mm-hmm. which is three times 22, obviously. And that's because each letter gets three verses. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's much longer and it's it's the center of the book, and at the center of that chapter is a um, the most powerful, most famous passage of the book. Right. So it's highly structured, and so it's why why this sort of A to Z in each chapter. It, maybe it's pointing to the completeness of suffering, right? The the full scope of suffering. Um, some say maybe it's just a way for people to remember a mnemonic device, right? Just an yeah. easy memory tool. I don't know about that, but. I think it's pointing to the completeness of suffering. So the, the outline very simply is chapter one, a destroyed city. Chapter two, a broken relationship. So it's going to move from the destruction to actually God's wrath mm-hmm. in this destruction in chapter two. Chapter three, a confident hope. This is where we, we have that line of one of my favorite hymns ever, great is thy faithfulness. Mm. So this is where that comes from. And it's amazing because it's happening in the midst of the worst destruction we could imagine. Right. That's when Jeremiah is saying these words, great is thy faithfulness. Chapter four, we have a sinful people. And then finally, chapter five, a prayerful plea. So that's, that's sort of the outline. And uh, yeah, I think that'll, it'll, it's pretty clear as we go through sort of you know how it's structured, but it's a little bit harder maybe to understand what, what's happening and why it's important. Right. Yeah. Well, if you want to get into the text, we'll let's kind of dig into these poems. It'd be, be very... Uh, Sorrowful, but yeah, be let's be sorrowful together. Let's lament. <laughs> Chapter one is a destroyed city. So we see that in the first verse, Israel is personified as a woman, mm-hmm. and that's for the bulk of this chapter. So right. verse one, how lonely sits the pe- city that was full of people. So we know it's a city that's being t- spoken of. How like a widow has she become? Right. So th- this is so she's a widow, and this is interesting because. That imagery is coming back from previous books of the um, of Jerusalem of God's people as being God's wife, mm-hmm. right? So now they're cast away, they're hopeless, they're forlorn, all of that. Verse two, she weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. Right. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her; they have become her enemies. So this this theme as well we've seen of the lovers of Israel the the false alliances right. that they made trusting in Egypt or Babylon or Syria or whoever, mm-hmm. and every time it let them down. So God's always condemning that because that is unfaithfulness to him and to his covenant. And so now we see that these lovers of hers, these nations she trusted in, don't help her. Mm-hmm. So the, and the, the why is very clear in all of this. The why is sin. Verse 5, her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Right. So this is because of sin. This is a fulfillment, like we said, of the curses in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Yeah, it's God's just punishment for Israel rebelling against him. And you see, you see transgression and sin, and yeah. that you see this thing repeated all throughout the book, almost. Yeah, and does our lament include our sin, or is it just a complaining for the the wrong things that happen to us? You know, I yeah. Mean, yeah. The lament, biblically speaking, it, as long as there is sin, is including sin. Right. Verse 8, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. Mm-hmm. So he's very clear as to why this happened. 
And he says, he has you know, a repeated phrase again and again. Verse 9, it says, Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fault is terrible. She has no comforter. Mm. Verse 17, Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. Verse 21, they heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. So this idea of a lack of a comforter is in direct contrast to Isaiah chapter 40. Right. Right, where there's a there's comfort coming in this in the latter days that God's going to comfort his people. But here we see there's no comfort. There's no consolation for Israel. Right. Oh, very intense. Verse 10, we see the temple is violated. The nations are coming into the sanctuary of God. Mm-hmm. Um, we see in verse 11 and following that they're they're destitute, they're starving. Right? They're they're looking for for bread. They'll trade their treasures for food. Mm-hmm. They'll give anything just to have some food. Um, and their sorrow is beyond comparison, right? Verse twelve: it, it, Is it nothing to you? To you, all you pass by, look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which is brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of His fierce anger. Hmm. So this is God's doing. There's it's without comparison, and it's and it's because of this false trust in those who they thought could deliver them. Right. So this is this is the culmination of what we've seen in all the prophets. That this right. was this was what they warned about. Chapter 2, we see an emphasis here more on the wrath of God. So chapter 1 is just speaking to the destruction of the city. Mm-hmm. But here we see you know, the relationship with God is at the center of it. So this is a picture of a broken relationship with God, that God has cast Israel away. Right. And this is so significant. Right. We see verse 4, He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. So God is aiming his bow at his people. Yeah. Which which is in which is sort of a ironic reversal of the Noahic covenant, mm. where God sets His bow in the clouds, saying, "I'm not going to right. attack you, um, and I'm not going to destroy the creation in this way." But but because of their sin, God is judging them. That bow is aimed at them. Right, and well, they've broken broken the covenant so many times, right? Absolutely. I, I was I'm blown away at um, yeah. God's ability to follow through with what He promises here—it's like uh, the beginning of chapter two. So that He's cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered His footstool uh, in the day of His anger. Yeah, God's people, the temple, like literally His place on earth, the place where God meets man. God's forgetting about it in His wrath right now and punishing, rightfully and justly so, yeah. um, people who have gone against Him. Yeah, it's crazy. It's yeah, it's it's very humbling, I think, and fearful. Uh, for us to serve a God like that. Like, we should be in awe of yeah. this God, you know? Yeah, our God is the consuming fire, as the New Testament says. Yeah, I feel I feel like it, it's so easy to maybe come to this and think, like, this book, and, and think somehow we're removed from the same kind of guilt when we sin against God, or somehow this, like, the God that we believe in today, even though God gives us full grace and, you know, forgiveness in Jesus Christ, that God still isn't just. Like, yeah. that He's not going to come and judge sin one day. Like, He's, he's patient, right? Patient yeah. for many years with Israel, but he comes here, and his patience is ended. But I think sometimes uh, we come to this text and we can just be like, "Oh, that was some God of the Old Testament or something like that." Yeah, yeah. yeah. That God is, yeah, God is so so patient as Jeremiah and Isaiah both <laughs> emphasized. God is reaching out again and again, like at Jeremiah's ministry, and yet if you reject Him constantly, there will be a day of judgment. Yeah, it, it's just we think that it it won't come in our time, that it mm-hmm. won't affect us. But I mean, this this is a picture of what judgment is all about. Yeah. Um, ver- look, I mean, look at how brutal verses eleven and twelve are. 
My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city, they cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine, as they fate like a wounded man in the streets of the city. And their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. So even the infants and children are dying of starvation. Yeah, They're suffering. We'll see this uh, several times in the book. It's hard to, hard to even stomach uh, because it's so brutal. And it's because they believed in false prophets. Right. Right? Verse 14, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes. I mean, think of, that's such an amazing phrase because we can often think it's wrong to confront someone in their sin, mm. right? That it's, it's, it's not loving to call something sin. And he's saying these prophets have destroyed you because they have not exposed your sin mm. in order that your, your fortunes could be restored. Yeah. yeah. So when you see someone who's suffering and hurting, if you as a pastor or a Christian even are saying, I'm not going to confront that. I don't want to, I just want to be nice. You're destroying them according to, according to the book of Lamentations, according to the entire scripture. Yeah, exactly. This isn't isolated to you know an Old Testament relationship with God or Israel and God's relationship. This is clearly taught in the New Testament for Christians of the New Covenant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the rest of this chapter <clears throat> has some interesting um, connections with Messianic Psalms. Hmm. So the, I got this from uh, Professor Abner Chow, but the, some interesting things in verses fifteen and following. So verse fifteen says, "All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads." at the daughter of Jerusalem. So that that phrasing <clears throat> is very similar to Psalm 22, hmm. where there's this person suffering who people are wagging their heads at, they're mocking. So there's a connection there. Psalm 22 is the psalm that starts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah. Right, and it ends with the, the Lord has done it. Mm-hmm. So two phrases that Jesus says on the cross, one directly and one somewhat indirectly, but it is finished is sort of a similar phrase to the Lord has done it. Um, verse 16, all your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth. They cry, we have swallowed her. And this, uh, this is the day we longed for. Now we have it, we see it. So this is the day is a similar, is, a, is the same phrase that's used in Psalm 118, mm. right? This is the day that the Lord has made. Right. So now it's being used ironically in the sense of the, the enemies are saying this is their day. Right. But it's pointing to that same messianic psalm, the same phrasing from that psalm. We see this, we see similar stuff in um, oh, and there's an echo there as well of Psalm 22. And then Psalm verse 17, the Lord has done what he purposed. Right. So that phrasing is very similar to the end of Psalm 22. Mm-hmm. The Lord has has done it. So there's a lot of hints throughout, and even in chapter three, there's sort of hints at a lot of different psalms, including Psalm 23 mm-hmm. of all psalms, but again, it's reversed, ironically. Yeah, but it's pointing to something. I think something deeper in in this in this book that it's pointing. It's kind of connecting back to Isaiah 53. It's connecting to this, the messianic psalms and the suffering, uh, you know, servant in the psalms, and it's drawing in the idea of who who Christ is going to be. Hmm. Interesting. So all of that is is being built up now. Chapter three. Like we said, it's the longest chapter. It's the heart of the book, and here Israel is personified as a as a man, a lonely man mm-hmm. who's enduring all the suffering personally. Right. So, so it's be natural to think maybe it's the prophet Jeremiah who's speaking here, but it's really not clear. Um, right. And a lot of people have different ideas about this. But the type of suffering that he's going through is in, is intense, and again, it's reminiscent of the Psalms, including Psalm twenty two, 
and Psalm 69. Big messianic psalms. If you don't know those psalms, definitely read them. Mm -hmm. You'll see a lot of things that if you're a believer, you're going to say, that's talking about Christ. That's quoted in the Gospels, Mm -hmm. and it is. It's also reminiscent of of Job 3 and Isaiah 53 as well, this sufferer going through these terrible circumstances. So uh, just a few things out of this chapter, but verses 1 through 3, you can see this. "I'm I'm the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath, He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. So he's speaking about God and how God has punished him and afflicted him and how he's suffering. Right. Verses 13 through 15, He drove into my kidneys the arrow of his quiver. I've become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. Mm. So again, I mean, so many connections here with, with past psalms but this intense suffering that he's speaking of, and this whole section is about that. So who is this Who is the sufferer? We don't really know. It's not really answered. Right. But we get to the heart of the book, this proclamation by the prophet Jeremiah of God's goodness in spite of suffering, mm-hmm. in the midst of suffering, we should say. In verse 22, this is the that key, key passage in the whole book. The steadfast... And it's just, it's kind of so... So like sudden, abrupt, yeah. yeah, like everything is awful. I hate my life. And then all of a sudden he says, uh, but this I, verse one, this, this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Hmm. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Yeah. So he speaks to this, the steadfast love of the Lord. It's actually steadfast. It's, it's chesed in, in Hebrew, which is steadfast love is a good translation. It's kind of like no one can really translate it well yeah, in one word, but whatever, yeah. loving kindness, it's the covenant loyalty and love of God. Yeah. So it's the fact that he falls through on his covenant. So steadfast love is a good translation, but it's actually plural here. It's the chesed's Hesedim, I guess, I don't know, the, the plural, the steadfast love, the, the um, faithfulnesses of the Lord. Mm-hmm. So that he is, it's speaking to the kind of the completeness of his, his covenant love. Um, so his, his love or his loves are, um, they never cease and his mercies never come to an end. So mm-hmm. God is faithful. And this, I think, reminds us of that God's love and his covenant promises are more strong and more sure than the city of Zion, right. than the Davidic line, than these things that they would have put their hope into. Than even the temple. Yeah. Than the temple, yeah. yeah, the priestly system, all that sort of stuff. So yeah. God's steadfast love remains, and therefore there is hope for God's people. Right. And this is what we were talking about earlier about lament. Like, in the midst of the worst thing that you can imagine, your nation getting torn apart and brought into literal slavery, your children and women are dying, Yeah. like, everything is broken, you're away from your homeland, Yet there's still hope because trusting God is central to your people's belief. God is powerful. He's sovereign. He's in control. Absolutely. So this, this is a totally different kind of lament than I think most people are used to thinking uh, through. Yeah, they, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's spoken by someone who is being crushed by the wrath of God. Mm-hmm. How could how could someone say that? Well, because. They understand who God is. They know his character. They know that this has only happened. Yeah. Right? The punishment has only happened because God is faithful. Right, exactly, yeah. And so if he's faithful to that, he's going to be faithful to the rest of Deuteronomy where he promises to redeem and restore them after the fact. Mm. 
to the rest of the promises of, of Jeremiah's own ministry, of Isaiah's ministry, of all the rest, right? That God, after he judges, he will redeem his people. Hmm. He will establish a kingdom that doesn't doesn't fade. Right. Could you, could you imagine uh, God um, putting arrows through your kidneys? That sounds painful, man. Sounds very painful. I don't like yeah, it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> Makes me very uncomfortable. Yeah, definitely obey God. Don't, uh, but don't hey, seek Even if judgment. he does, his steadfast love never ends. Never ceases. Yeah. Never ceases. The Lord is my portion. Right, so God is all I have, so I'm going to hope in him. So I love it. And then it's, it's followed up, verses 25, 27. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. So mm-hmm. it's good, 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 right, over and over again. So trust in God, seek him, wait for him, for his salvation. Right. Um, I, I, I love it. I love it. And, so, and then we see following that, it's okay to suffer, and you need to trust in God, right? Verse 31, the Lord will not cast off forever. Yeah. I like 31, though. Yeah, exactly. The Lord will not cast off forever. God's has patience. Yeah. And because <laughs> verse 33, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So it's mm. not that God does this because he wants to. His ultimate desire is to save his people, mm. but it's something that has to be done because of his faithfulness. And then... Um, a really interesting at, in verses 37 and 38, a real statement about God's sovereignty. And this is directly related to that statement of his faithfulness, right? That God is in control. Mm. He's powerful. But who, verse 37 says, who has come and who has, sorry, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the most high that, that good and bad come? So God, God is sovereign over everything, good and bad, the, the good, not speaking of good and evil, but the good things and the calamities come from God. God's in control of it all. So this is this is fundamental to someone saying, "I can trust in God that He's going to work this out." It's that God has to be in control even in the dark times. Right. So incredible theology in the book of of uh, Lamentations, and the solution is verse forty. Right. Let us test and examine our ways in return. To the Lord, let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. So come and repent, seek God, uh, seek His forgiveness, and, and He will be faithful to that promise. Amen. I was I was starting to get really encouraged uh, this point in the book. Yeah. I was like, oh, it's gonna, you know, end happy again. Yeah, that was silly. Yeah, exactly. You should have known better. It goes right back. <laughs> yeah, back, back. So, so chapter four. <laughs> We see more of that, um, the suffering of the city. Yeah, right, the we gold see. has grown dim. <laughs> so. well, yeah, we see, and it's a focus on the, the sinful people of Israel. Um, yeah, and we could go into that, I guess, too. But <laughs> chapter 5 is interesting, right? So it ends, it's very sad, very tragic, but it ends on kind of an interesting note. So verse 1 of chapter 5, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen on us. Look and see our disgrace. So he's calling upon God, so... There's a prayerful plea mm-hmm. in this last chapter. He's turning to God, praying to him, again, lamenting what's happening. But it ends on an interesting note. So verse 19 says, But you, O Lord, reign forever. Mm-hmm. Your throne endures to all generations. So the sovereignty of God, the control of God, that's his certainty. Right. Verse 20, Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Verse 21, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. So there's this final plea. God, get, grant us forgiveness. Restore us. Bring us back to yourself. Mm. And the final verse, verse 22, 
unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. So it ends on a really down note, really depressing note. Mm -hmm. But there's this overall, there's this this call, this cry to God, knowing that he is the only hope they have. Right. He's the one who can restore them. Right. And of course, we can back up and look at the big picture of the Bible and say, God did restore his people, and he did something better than that, right? If he just brought them back to the land, that wouldn't have solved the problem. In fact, it, you see the people of Israel get exiled from the land again in right. AD 70, but he solves the greatest problem that people have through his son, Jesus. Right, yeah. So I guess I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but... Well, I think we're there. Yeah. So, yeah, how does how does the hope of the gospel work with us? I think it's super applicable. I mean, we live in a broken world. What's the answer to the broken world? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so this lament, this struggle is never really fully reversed in the, in the Old Testament, right? Because the exile never really ends. They come back from exile, but they're crying because the temple is lame. Right. Because it's not the glory. You know, God isn't on their side like before. It doesn't feel like that, right? There's mm-hmm. no... There's not the victory, it's not the Vedic kingship, all these things are missing. And it's it's through Jesus that actually happens. And you see in the life of Jesus a few things, right? Jesus, when he arrives at Jerusalem, he laments for the city as well. Mm-hmm. In a way that, that points back to Jeremiah in Luke 13, 34. It says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those stones those who are sent to, to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hmm. So he's, he's lamenting the fact that Jerusalem is the same kind of people now that it was back then. Hmm. They're still killing the prophets. They're about to kill him, the greatest of the prophets, the right. son of God. They, they're, they're still missing it. Right. They don't, they don't get it, and Christ has to become what was so crucial in this city. Hmm. He has to become the temple, as we saw in John 2, right? That he's the one who fulfills the purpose of the temple. Tear this temple down, and in three days I will build it up. He has to become the Davidic king. He has to become the high priest to minister these, the, the sacrifice of himself for his people once and for all. So right. everything that Zion was, everything it pointed to, is fulfilled in Jesus. But also, in the last days... Jesus is going to reestablish Jerusalem right. as the center of the world. Zion will be the, a new city that God's people will dwell in forever. Yeah. So that hope of that city isn't gone. It's just fulfilled in Jesus. Yeah. And it's like, and that's where I feel like lament is finally done away with. You yeah. Know? We, and we see that in 21, Revelation 21, 22. And, but yeah, and it, you see the, this promise is continued. Like you've, you know, we've gone over this promise a million times that God is going to restore his people fully. And there's going to be a full relationship back with God. And that's when actual lament is done away with is when we're with God again. <laughs> that's right. So. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, you see the suffering servant idea as well, right? Who is this mysterious figure in chapter 2, chapter 3? Um, I mean, in some sense, it, it points to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Whether you can say it's literally Jesus or not, it's debatable, I guess. But it clearly points to the suffering he will endure. Right. If it's if it's a picture of the corporate reality of Israel, then Jesus embodies that in his suffering on the cross. So that makes sense, right? Yeah, my God, my God, why have you if, it, if it's me? a Davidic king that's suffering, Jesus is that true Davidic king who mm-hmm. fulfills that. So all of that points to what he will endure on the cross, the fact that he's going to suffer for his people. Mm. And that he, you know, we may feel forsaken. Jeremiah felt forsaken 
And to some degree he was, but Jesus Christ endures the full reality of what that means. Right. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah. Those words are on his lips because they're true. Right. Yeah. Well, amen to that. And yeah, I think this gives us a hope in the midst of a broken world. I mean, in fact, this is the only hope is through Jesus Christ that we can have something solid to stand on in this world. So, That's right. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us for Daily Gospel. We'll see you next week. See you then. All right.